I'm Stephanie Belouris, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, I'm excited to be joined by principal analyst David Holmes to discuss the future of Zero Trust. Welcome, David. Thanks, Steph. Thanks for having me. In order to talk about the future of Zero Trust, I think it makes sense to first define it. You know, for those of us who don't live and breathe security, um, like you and I do, (laughs) first let's define it and maybe even let's give a little bit of a history of how Zero Trust was born. Sure, sure. So, Steph, um, let me tell you about how I came to it. So, it was about 2009 or 2010, right around in there. I was a a software developer at the time working on network security code and somebody asked for my opinion on this zero trust paper that had just come out. And I, I read through the paper and it was, it was like one of those light bulb moments in your life where you, you realize we've been doing everything wrong. And that's what the paper was trying to say was that everything we've been doing, sort of building the digital world, we have been doing it with so many blind spots and perhaps building it the wrong way. And, and the, the original Zero Trust paper, uh, which was titled No More Chewy Centers, the Zero Trust Model of Information Security, talked about what if we could build a world where we were much more focused on three things. One is let's let's allow access to things based on someone's identity, not where they're coming from in the network, right? It shouldn't be a network topology conversation. It should be, who is this? Is this David? Is this Stephanie? Is this an attacker, et cetera? Um, th- and the second principle being least, least privileged access should be enforced. And then the third is that you should assume that you're, you're going to get breached, um, which was a very prescient prediction. Because I don't know if you know this stuff, but in, uh, you know that when we ask that research question every year, how many times did your organization get breached? Um, last year, 74% of the respondents, and this is between five and 600 respondents, 74% said the org had been breached at least once. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, no, I, that doesn't surprise me at all. Actually, fun fact, I was the research director on that report with John Kindervog, the original No More Chewy Centers report. Yeah, and it, it was, it was interesting. I mean, we, some of the things that drove that at the time was we were, Frustrated by a few things, we were frustrated by the fact that nobody was paying attention to insider threats. Um, and insider threats were growing dramatically year over year, but we just kept talking about external attacks, external attacks. And we're like, well, what about insider threats? Um, yeah, the other frustrating thing as well was, to your point, uh, companies were getting breached and they weren't finding out for months. And back then in 2009, 2010, it wasn't unusual for companies to go years without realizing that attackers were just dwelling in their in their environment so and that all led to the fact where yeah you've already breached and they're already inside right the killer's inside the house <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. the phone call is coming from inside the house yeah and it's interesting too i get the question a lot about that term zero trust which you know again for those in security we get it for those outside of security i remember even some forester analysts reacting really negative negatively to it at first they're like are you telling me not to trust my colleagues not to trust my employees it's like no 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 um you know people aren't packets so i think one thing too would be to talk about that evolution which is you know we had that original vision of zero trust in 2009 2010 but 
it was very network centric back then. It was a lot about segmenting the network, using next gen firewalls to segment the network. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of, of zero trust over time? Just to double click on that point, I, I don't think it's a coincidence or anything that it started at the network because that's often the, I mean, that's where they move, that's where the attackers move around, right? And for most organizations that I talk to today, it's still the sloppiest, dirtiest part of their organization. You know, they'll just say, I have no idea what's going on on our network. <laughs> yeah. um, so it, it didn't surprise me at all that it's, the conversation started there and it's still going on today. Uh, um, but, but it did sort of evolve in that we would always get questions well, people would say, I like the sound of the zero trust. How do I get started? Like that, that was like the, the question for years and years and years. And we would sort of give answers to that. And the evolution that happened with zero trust, say between maybe 2013, 2014, and then probably 2019 was how to operationalize it, how to get a typical organization on the various, I hate to use the word silos, teams, uh, the various teams in an organization that might already be existing, how can you work across those teams in order to put in place a roadmap to get you toward a more zero trust operating model? So if you look at any forest documentation, we used to call this the zero trust extended ecosystem, you will see a series of circles that describe um, you might have a data team, a devices team, a network team, et cetera, et cetera. How can you operationalize zero trust sort of across these or parallel, parallelize it? Um, so that was, uh, you were there for a lot of that. Would you, do, would you agree that that's sort of how it laid out, Steph? Yeah, it's, you know, as you meant the, uh, the core pillars or the, the concentric circles as we talk it, I do feel like there were years where it's like, oh, it's all about the network, right? Just figure out a way to segment your network to keep people, keep attackers from making lateral movements in the environment. Um, and then you could also find them better. Then there were sort of the years that it was all about data security, right? Like you just need to encrypt all of your data by default. And then there were sort of the years of Zero Trust is all about identity and access management, which is just limit and strictly enforce all access controls. And all the identity vendors were super excited about Zero Trust. And I do think we went through these evolutions. And at some point where Forrester was like, it's all these things. <laughs> you've got to segment your network. You've got to encrypt. You've got to limit and strictly enforce access. You better have... Um, really good detection capabilities, you know, putting your head on a swivel and being able to see everything happening in your environment. So it's almost like every two years, there was a realization that to put zero trust together, you needed everybody, these silos, if you, if you will, working together. I think also too, and I don't know if you would agree with this, it seems like over the years too, you could either get, go after the entire environment by addressing each of those weak spots, right? The, the network, your approach to identity, your approach to securing data. And then it also seemed like at some point people decided to take more of a use case approach where, okay, it's all about, I've got these new environments, I'm deploying a new workload or I'm deploying a new remote office. So I'm curious if that's where like Zero Trust Edge and Zero Trust Network Access really started coming about. I think one of the, one of the big changes we saw it was right around the, the pandemic. So I was the analyst taking all the calls from uh, security architects and IT people uh, the day after everyone got sent home to work from home and no one's VPNs were working. And there was a lot of interest in 
uh, how do I how do I get zero trust to help me out here? Because I need to get everyone working again. Because right now, no one's no one's doing anything. Um, and so we, that was that was just six months stuff of where I just took call after call after call, and I know every every possible way a VPN can fail because of that uh, uh, because of that time. But that was a huge driver to get organizations who maybe hadn't really had a security interest in zero trust all of a sudden because of the pandemic and all the the work from home, they were using zero trust. To, to get the productivity back and get back to it. And, and what I'm hoping is that they got, if that was their first taste of zero trust, that they liked it and they want to see more of it. Okay. And, and have you seen additional use cases or drivers really, really move it forward? Um, I mean, actually, originally it was about insider risk, but it, it sort of in those early years became all about the external attacks. But I was curious, like insider risks, you know, the push for the cloud. Yeah, a, cu- a couple of other ones, a couple of other drivers are, of course, the the, uh, the government mandates, or at least the Biden executive order, that really pointed not just the government, but everybody in a direction, right? And so I talked to a lot of, uh, you know, it might be insurance companies or a state and local government or even a city who's obviously not part of the mandate. And, and they want to do a zero trust project or a program and we'll be talking about it. And I might ask them, you know, what's, what's, what's behind this. And sometimes they'll say, well, we think eventually there'll be a mandate for us too, but more often they'll say, well, this is, this is where the world is going and we want to be, you know, we want to be moving in the right place as well. So, so I think it directionally set everybody going in that way, even if they're not, it's not part of a mandate. And then a couple of other things. One is, um, one is ransomware. So ransomware has been such a scourge across so many different organizations because it's not, it's not like vent, it's not like industry specific, right? Anybody can suffer from from ransomware, um, and it's sometimes it'll be an, uh, a company that has had a ransomware incident, and they'll come to the realization, oh, you know, maybe it would have been nice if we would have done zero trust before this, but at least now we now we know we should do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. So yeah, that 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 is interesting. Ransomware makes a lot more sense as a drive. So actually, speaking of the executive order outside the U.S., and I know you travel a lot. Um, I mean, we've seen strong demand in other parts of the world, Europe, Asia Pacific. They might not necessarily be as far ahead as the U.S., but it seems like the the demand is now global. I don't I don't know if you. No, I, agree with I, that. I would, I would agree, and I spend I spend most of my time if I'm outside the U.S. I spend most of my time in Asia, and anybody who's been there or works there knows that it's it's multiple levels, multiple varying levels of security competence, uh, technological adoption. It's hard to talk about it as just one place, but in some places there, I am seeing hey, well, there's definitely interest in zero trust, or we have even been trying to do zero trust. But I will also see people who will say we have no security program whatsoever. Like, they, I had one uh, bank exec tell me there could be hackers all over the place in here. We would have no idea. Right, that's good that we've gone at least that far. But we've got the we've got the core principles. We've got the model, and you know we we have our own kind of detailed model for it. We sort of know what the drivers have been. Kind of start off with anywhere work cloud modernization. I've seen a lot of industries deploy it when they need to um, 
create access for partners, like giving the art, like partners the right level of privileged access. Um, I know I think about um, manufacturers and their needing to share data with suppliers. Um, I've seen some companies use it to pilot some emerging tech in a very controlled way. When they go and acquire another company, right? And especially for, there, there are some organizations out there that make you know, many acquisitions per year, maybe an acquisition per quarter. And when you do that many acquisitions, you, you can't just merge everyone's networks together. Because, I mean, there's just obvious danger in that. And so one of the things they're doing now is defining, all right, here are the users of the new organization and here's their different roles and, and maybe point their zero trust solution at the identity provider of the, of the target they're acquiring. Uh, and here are the resources in the mothership that they need access to. And let's just use zero trust to bridge this gap. Maybe we'll merge the networks down the road, but if we use zero trust, we don't actually have to do that now or maybe even ever. And then that, that's actually super cool. That's like a really neat sort of laboratory, um, real life laboratory of using zero trust. Uh, super cool stuff. So I guess now that we've kind of talked about the, the past, right? We've defined it talked about how it evolved, where it's been, what have been the most like common use cases. I mean, l let's talk about the future and maybe some of the future makes sense in the, in the context of its challenges, which is, you know, there is no single technology for zero trust. It's, it's a model. Um, yeah. So I think in the, there's a whole bunch of things that I think will have to happen in the short term. And that's not necessarily super interesting. Um, if you're if you're ever curious about that, set up an inquiry with me. I think in the medium term, there, we're going to see more systems built around zero trust, and we're starting to see this already today. So, for example, if you've read our our research into what we call a zero trust edge, or you might see in the industry as SASE, it's an architecture that combines networking and security, and and then uses a lot of zero trust principles in order to provide access to things. And it takes into account the fact that uh, applications might be on-prem or they might be in the cloud. Users might be on, you know, at, in the office or they might be remote, which very, very much describes a modern, you know, your, your workforce, right? Um, for whatever organization you happen to be in, especially if you have a lot of knowledge workers. So the, the sort of cool thing is that the architectures that are being built are going to have much more zero trust in them. And and that's fantastic. And I just released a blog gosh, a couple of weeks ago. I was talking about how all three of the hyperscalers, uh, at least the big ones in the US, right? Uh, AWS, Azure, Google, all of them now offer cloud native zero trust network access into applications that might be hosted there. Um, and so you're, start, you're, starting to, you're starting to see this uh, in the architectures that are being built to solve today's problems and then tomorrow's problems. If you if you look if you look a little bit further down the line, like well, what's like three to five years out or or maybe even beyond there, the we're going to have to have systems that are not just zero trust by design, right? Which which I think I just alluded to. It, but they'll have to be zero trust by default, right? We're not there yet. It's like zero trust is, is say like a de facto cybersecurity model because what else is there? Um, that's great. But eventually it needs to be 
it needs to be by default so that if you put a new architecture out or a new system, it would just be zero trust. And it would, people would question you why it wasn't zero trust uh, if you ever were going to put something out there like that. And that, I think that's great, too. Um, and where today we're using zero trust to say improve the employee experience in, in the case of zero trust network access, being able to give everybody uh, sort of free them from the tethers of, of VPNs in the future, we might be using zero trust to improve the customer experience, right? The CX. Um, and that's starting to get far enough out that, I, that uh, it, it starts to get pretty interesting um, and it'll be really interesting to see how people fill in the gaps between what we have now and and how we get to apply zero trust in a B2C CX kind of environment. Yeah. I mean, I can see with zero trust edge or and zero trust network access, I mean, it definitely improves the employee experience if they're not using VPNs and they don't have to worry about exactly where their apps are being hosted. It's like whatever app they need access to. Um, they're just going to get secure access to only the systems that they need to do their jobs. And it's going to be seamless from their perspective. Um, it also potentially lets them use whatever device they want to use as opposed to just company, company issued laptop. I, I do think on the CX side, I, I see some of the ways that it could improve CX. I mean, even today with some types of multi-factor authentication, if you're using biometrics, I think it's actually easier to log in to certain mobile apps and websites and with biometrics than it is to remember, you know, my username and password, which I can never remember. Right. <laughs> so it's actually, it's actually more secure. Mm -hmm. It's limiting access. Um, so it, it is an element of zero trust. It's not zero trust end to end because I don't know what's happening on the back end, but th that front end piece about, you know, not assuming trust, um, People are not trusted by default and that until they actually prove who they are and then you're authenticating them properly. I mean, that is a core element of, of yes. zero trust and it's doing a better job of actually improving CX. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think both the sort of B2C side and the B2B side have things that they can teach each other. For example, some of the things you were talking about, about just the ease of use of using a modern consumer device. Um, I mean, it recognizes your face for goodness sake, right? Like you're going to look at that device anyway, and it just happened to use the fact that you're glancing at it to authenticate you. Like it doesn't get any easier than that. And ultimately, that's what we want Zero Trust to be in the future future. It's just that there's all these kind of missing parts in between about, well, who actually, what, in, what third party owns your identity at that point? And how are those trust relationships established? I think we're pretty far from that. But it's it's a it's a gap that could be bridged, right? Yeah, when you think about it, it really being end to end zero trust. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm curious about some of the other use cases you might be excited about. Like, actually, I, I feel like in the last year, everyone's been really excited about confidential computing as an example. I mean, would you call that an instantiation of zero trust? Oh, it can be. That's that's a great question. One I've never had before, Steph. Um, so the one of the interesting things you can do with confidential computing. And I remember talking to, it was, it was somebody in healthcare. And if you're in that space, you know how sort of rigid it is about what data can be shared with whom. Right. Um, and, but if somebody, I, I remember it was a case like this, somebody wanted to bring, they had some new artificial intelligence models. They wanted to run across a host of healthcare data to see what kind of insights would pop out. 
right? And I think in the interests of all of humanity and everyone's health, the world would want to see this research being done. But it's not easy. You can't just hand somebody all of your healthcare data, right? That violates all kinds of um, all kinds of rules. So one of the things that confidential computing allowed was, what if we took the algorithm to the data and ran it concurrently where the data lived? And then the results come back, but the data never left where it was. And I think that's actually, that's super interesting, right? Because it sort of turns the whole access part on its head about what if you took the workload to the data instead of the other way around? So um, there's a lot of cool stuff that can happen there and I think is happening in certain industries. I'm, I'm not seeing it, the broad application of it yet, though. I don't know if you are, Steph. No, no. I mean, I think everybody's excited for it. You mentioned healthcare. I think the same thing in biotech. I think also people have talked about it as potentially really valuable when it comes to issues of data residency. Um, but so I think everyone's working it out, but not a ton of concrete examples just yet. Oh, f- sharing fraud data as well in retail or potentially in banking, because even competitors have an interest in being able to catch um, crime syndicates uh, across <laughs> uh, across their environments by by cooperating. Right. So definitely yeah. tons of use cases. Tons yeah. of use cases. I guess getting back to the future of it for the average em- enterprise, I mean, all these enterprises are are our clients, you know, healthcare, biotech, financial services. But if you take a typical client, and I think I've mentioned this in my last podcast too, that I helped to host, you know, they're hybrid cloud, right? They have some applications on-prem, some in the cloud. They're multi-cloud and that they have multiple hyperscalers that they might be working with. Tons of legacy applications that we would probably consider like tech debt, quote unquote, um, I think for them, when they think about the road to zero trust, um, is there a future where some of the policy is more automated? Because you talk about access controls across 2,400 applications, um, as an example, across environments, um, or or even more granular network policies and and controls. I, I think people start to get overwhelmed when they think about just the sheer size of their environment. Oh, and they absolutely do. And just to give you an example, a couple of examples um, that I ran across recently. One was, um, it was a case of uh, organization wanting to replace their VPN with zero trust network access. And the particular technology that they chose had this cool feature where it could, after it was in place for a while, it could be watching all of the connections and, and it would discover applications that you had that maybe you didn't know about. Right. So so that it could suggest policy like, oh, I identified this thing. I think it's a wiki uh, or something like that. But um, anyway, they put this tool in place and it uncovered it was something like 700 applications. And the, uh, the <laughs> team had no idea that they had that many. And they were they were shocked. Right. And they were like, do, do we have to write policy for 700 applications? Right. They sort of in one way it was good. That now they have some knowledge of like, oh, we actually have a really big problem here. Um, but in another way, it was bad because they had they they were so overwhelmed by the sheer amount of work that was sitting in front of them. Right? Because the thing about zero trust, is when I try to explain it simply, I'm like, it is replacing implicit trust with explicit policy. 
which sounds simple, but actually could represent an enormous amount of work, right? Because implicit trust is free. Explicit trust requires policy, right? That has to be created. Um, And I think in the future, we're going to have to get much better at automatically creating policy. Um, There's some solutions out there now, which will sort of watch everything and go, this is how everything's connecting now. Do you want to make this the explicit policy? And if you have to set aside for the moment that some of the, that you might already have attackers in your system and that, and that you were allowing whatever they're doing to continue. Uh, so if you set that aside for the moment and just say, okay, well, this is how everything's working now. I'm going to at least make this the explicit policy that sort of jumps you ahead to, oh, now everything that's happening is explicitly allowed rather than implicitly allowed. Uh, and I want to give you a second example because you had mentioned hybrid. Um, was working with a bank, and just a really good security team. Like these guys, knew, they knew how many applications they had. It was, I'm going to give you a number, but it's not the exact number. It was a thousand, right? So it's a thousand applications. We have a thousand applications and... Um, their CTO said they have to move them all to the cloud. And I, I, I warned these guys, I'm like, you know, not all of them are going to be able to move to the cloud. They're like, yeah, yeah, we know. We have had this conversation with their CTO many times that a lot of these things just can't move. It's, it's mainframes or it's some piece of software that was written by a contractor 15 years ago and that contractor's out of business, whatever. Um, uh in their, they've been working on it for four years and they'd only moved about 50 applications. And I said, guys, at this rate, we will all be retired before you move everything. You should just, you need to get your execs to understand that you live in a hybrid world. Some stuff's going to be high, some stuff's going to be up in the public cloud, but you're still going to have a whole bunch of legacy stuff that just wasn't, you weren't able to move it or it didn't make sense to move it. So in that scenario, Zero trust is still the right security model because it's providing a layer of policy across apps, like regardless of where they of where they are hosted, where they're located. Yes, yeah, yeah. For the most part, yes. And the only reason, the only caveats I have is there is that some people have some tech that's so old it's just really hard, or if it's, it's OT or something, right? It's just the the zero trust security controls that that you could find today. Um, wouldn't necessarily fit that, but for the for the vast majority of, of applications out there, the zero trust is the right model, and it wouldn't sort of matter if it was up in the cloud or if it was on prem. You still use zero trust to get to it. So then, I'm also wondering, like everything we just talked about, you've got several thousand applications in this hybrid multi-cloud environment. Um, we've got to turn everything into explicit policies. Is there an actual layer of management software console etc that's helping us automate this or is it several consoles it yeah you know what would be awesome would be a single console that somehow spanned across different vendors and architectures and stuff but there's nothing like that exists that i know right right um and I think we've always wanted that, not just for security, but for everything. Hey, I'm just trying to manage all my all of my things. Um, what is one overarching single pane of glass that I could use to look at that? I that's still a holy grail, and maybe somebody will come up with that. I, I'm continually surprised by things I thought would never be possible 
that somehow end up happening. This is one thing that I hope to see someday, that there's some kind of way where somebody could build something that would show here's all of the relationships and possible relationships and you could manage them. Right. You could manage them in a single place. The future then really is, as we mentioned, is it's going to be in by design and default in more and more of the infrastructure and the software and the management consoles that we're deploying. So over time, it gets easier. Right. Yes. Over time, it gets easier. Now, there, there is one place. I mentioned that I was a software developer for a long time. And so when we talk about like the distant future, right, the somehow the soft, the software developers will be building a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. But software developers are actually not particularly good at security, not throwing shade on anybody. I was, a, it's a different mindset. Like to, a modern software developer is so, they have so much, they have to use so much of their cognitive ability just to stay um, up to date on whatever it is they're working at. It's very difficult for them to think in a security mindset. And so in the future, a lot of the stuff that they're building has to be zero trust, but we can't necessarily rely on them to be zero trust experts because they have to be experts in their own thing. So what we're going to have to do is make sure that the tools and frameworks that they use are zero trust and will generate things that are zero trust as they build them. Right. So it has to be much more about the tools that they use, the standards they follow and the frameworks that they use to get to zero trust. Because I think if we were to lie just on the developers, I don't think that's the right strategy. And at the end of the day, too, I mean, we know for the CISO, we've talked a lot about mandates. Like you should do this because it's mandated. It's part of the executive order. And if you're doing business with the federal government, you better have it in place. Or if you're part of critical infrastructure, you better have it in place. But for the average business too, there's, there's also just a lot of business benefits. I mean, beyond just reducing the the frequency and the impact of breaches, um, it does have a lot of potential. Like we've shown in a lot of instances, you're actually improving employee experience. You're improving customer experience. Yeah, I, I, I gave a, a talk about this at RSA a couple of years ago that there, because of the way the technology is progressing and the fact that that zero trust can can sort of lean on some of the things that are being invented in the consumer space as far as reducing friction, it can lead to things like a productivity increase uh, or allowing anybody to use whatever device that they wanted to use. So um, in, in some research that Forrester did, I can't remember the team, maybe you know, but uh, they looked at in the future of work and the employee experience index, what kinds of policies lead to the greatest employee satisfaction and therefore retention and therefore productivity. Uh, being able to use the device of their choice was really, really high up there. Yeah, agreed, yeah. And, and I think that was one of the points I was just, trying to um, drive home, which is, this is bigger than the security team, right? Um, if you're, I mean, the rest of IT for sure has to be a big part of it, but I think the, the business needs to be part of the zero trust conversation just because of the implications on EX, on CX, on the ability to make an acquisition, um, maybe even open a remote office or a corporate location in an area that's highly risky, it has a number of 
business benefits beyond what's sort of obvious for just the the CISO, him or herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, and I don't. I'm not entirely sure that a lot of say non-security leaders are necessarily thinking in that direction yet. And maybe that's on us uh, as industry analysts to try to open their eyes a little bit about what could you do if you were a little bit more confident about the risks that you were taking um, and that you had the things in place that you needed to mitigate them. Exactly. Well, great, David. Thank you so much for for joining us today. Thanks, Steph. Uh, Really, really had a good time on the show. Thanks for having me. If you like what you heard today, be sure to check out the upcoming Security and Risk Forum taking place November 14th and 15th in Washington, D.C. To learn more about the event, visit for.com slash SR23. That's F-O-R-R dot com slash SR23. Thanks for listening.